The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome a fellow registered dietitian and friend, Ms. Rebecca Scritchfield. She is a certified exercise physiologist as well as being a registered dietitian. She's also the author of the book, Body Kindness, Transform Your Health from the Inside Out, and Never Say Diet Again. Through her weight-inclusive counseling practice, she helps people make peace with food, find joy in exercise, and create a better life with workable goals that fit individual interests. Central to all of her work, Rebecca aims to develop self-compassion in place of shame by rejecting the rules of diet culture and the pervasive myth that to achieve better health and happiness, one must lose weight. Now, I happened to hear Ms. Gritchfield speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. this past fall. I fell in love with her message and her work, and I knew I wanted to have her on. The session that Ms. Scritchfield presented was titled The Neurobiology of Dieting, Evidence for Improving Mental Health with a Self-Care Approach. She presented with a neuroscientist, Dr. Sandra Amet. Welcome, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. You have been on major media all over the country. Probably some of our listeners have even read your work in the Washington Post, O Magazine, Self, Real Simple Health, Yoga Journal. Have you always been focused on body acceptance and weight acceptance, or is this a new path for you? I would say that this is a relatively new path in the sense of I spent most of my life dieting, thinking that I was making positive changes for my health, which is still the dominant message that we get today, that somehow trying to eat more perfectly or offsetting food intake with exercise, that these are the things that we should do for health. And they actually can cause a lot more harm than good psychologically and physically as well. So I like to think of it that doing what I do now is a lot about learning from my mistakes in my own life and even mistakes I made early in my career as a dietitian and working with clients. And I had my rock bottom moment where I realized that what I was doing with clients was not making their life better. It was actually increasing their guilt and shame. And and it was just too focused on their worthiness and their health tied up into their weight. So even going out and enjoying a pizza on a Friday night was something that was unconscionable because there was no way they could fit it in. And it took a while for me to evolve, but I had a nagging feeling that there was a way to help people truly build better habits without dieting. And I relied on a combination of peers who were further along in understanding about weight science and the concept of size, diversity, and health as well as just trusting my gut and delving into research around positive psychology and behavior changes. The number one question I had in my mind is, what am I going to do in my life if I'm not dieting? And what am I going to ask my clients to do? Because there has to be 
ways of making changes without following external diet plans. And then eventually body kindness was born. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think that all of us were schooled in this same model of calories in, calories out. There's a lot of shaming, and you spoke about that in your session. And I just want to let our listeners know that your session was at 8 a.m., and the room was packed, and you received really remarkable applause for all of the things that both you and Dr. Emmott spoke about. So I think the time is right for this philosophy. Mm-hmm. You spoke about weight stigma. And mm-hmm. I thought, let's preface the rest of our conversation about weight stigma. What is it? And how do you think we came to that? Yes. So weight stigma is really about looking at our society. And it is understanding that there is a structure of our society that causes us to make assumptions about people based on their weight. And it can be uncomfortable to think about because as humans, we want to be good and we want to do good and kind things. That's a natural tendency. So we hear a concept of weight stigma. It can make us really uncomfortable because we think about, well, of course that person must be eating too much food and they must not be exercising. And it's this idea of understanding that it's culturally we have set up people to say, make judgments about a person's health based on their weight. And it gets reinforced and passed down and it's in all sections. So it exists in medicine just by using the body mass index and the fact that physicians get insurance reimbursement by talking to people about intensive lifestyle changes just based on their body mass index without even talking to them about what they're doing already. Whoa. Um, Yeah, and you can ask any person, especially a higher weight person, how do you feel when you go see the doctor? How do you feel about being weighed? What types of conversations have you had with your doctor about your health and wellness? And quite often people need to, they end up avoiding the doctors because the stigma they face is uncomfortable. They'll go in for an earache and they get a weight lecture. And to understand that by having that conversation, the doctor is getting reimbursed by insurance and they are likely intending to be helpful because they're trained about the obesity epidemic and it's harmful. And what they're not hearing is that the weight stigma alone is harmful to that person's health. And we there is research that shows that it increases their allostatic load, which is like there's only so much you can tolerate before it's going to start impacting your health risk for things like heart disease or diabetes. These things that we say like, oh, this is linked to weight. We take that to mean a higher weight caused those things. Yeah. What we're just now starting to have a conversation about is that what about the weight stigma? How has somebody's lifelong weight stigma impacted their own sense of self-worth, their own sense of well-being and self-care, their own mental health. Um, We have to think about our mental health and our physical. And the truth is we don't know anything about a person's health just by looks alone. And whenever we start to make judgments, that's just weight stigma in action. And that is what, as a society, we need to work on acknowledging and understanding and just trying to do better. That was one of the points that I thought was so remarkable in your talk, where we looked Mm -hmm. at data showing what really does increase mortality or the risk of illness and dying. Is it the fact that we're overweight or is it the fact that we're maybe smoking or not being physically active or having stress? Mm -hmm. And 
if the data presented is correct, or as we know it today, it appears that really weight doesn't have nearly as much of an effect on mortality as simply being inactive. Exactly. So physical inactivity is associated with about 14% of your increased risk for a chronic disease, regardless of somebody's weight. And when you tease out weight alone and you look at obesity, it is the higher grades of obesity. So it's, it's like the extreme ends, extreme high weight and extreme low weight is correlated with an increased risk. But physical inactivity is 14% and obesity is more like 2 or 3%. But again, most people would look at somebody and say they're higher weight, they must not exercise. And what we want to do in addressing weight stigma is, okay, are there safe places to exercise? Can this person exercise without being ridiculed? Is there comfortable clothing and shoes this person has? Is it affordable? So those are the ways in which it's more like we need to look at, well, what is our fitness environment like? And are we open and non-judgmental to people at a higher weight? So I've had clients who've told me the only place they feel comfortable exercising is in their house with curtains up. They have so much body shame because they've literally been yelled at just going on a walk. Mm-hmm. And it's things like that understanding that these things happen and they're real. And the best thing that you can do as a listener is ask somebody who's willing to talk to you who is at a higher weight, and they'll have a story that will move you to tears. Wow. I remember you also mentioned folding in racism then along with mm-hmm. being overweight and how black women in particular truly suffer because not only are they dealing with the society's reaction to their being overweight, but then we have to fold in the fact that, oh, their skin is a darker color, so they're getting that layer of rejection as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a concept called intersectionality that was turned by Kimberly Crenshaw. And it's how we can look at all the intersecting identities and experiences of a person that makes an impact on what privileges they have or what oppressions they have. And so the Center for Disease Control, this was written in their own journal where they looked at data from the Black Women's Health Initiative and they actually recommended that public health programs focus on factors outside of weight because racism alone has been shown to explain differences and health outcomes. So we absolutely in our society need to address our racism that still exists today. And at the same time, we need to respect what the CDC is writing about, which is we know that we need to help people make positive behavior changes. What we're saying is focus on meaningful self-care that are within the resources of your target group that you're working with and take weight off the table. Hmm. What do you mean when you say self-care? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. I will say that it is really important to bring up that there are a lot of things that people can't control. And poverty, we know, is a significant factor in somebody's risk of disease. And we don't like to talk about it or think about it because it causes pain within ourselves. But that's just the reality. So the privilege that you and I have for our size and our education level and our income level, it makes it easier for us to ignore data like that 
there are experts in social justice and income inequality that know very well that what you're talking about is holding down a job, having a roof over your head, providing for the people you need to provide for, the time to shop and cook and prepare meals, the time to exercise when you're exhausted. If you have children, do you have resources like a co-parent or are you struggling there? And that all these other intersecting difficulties independently can determine what a person actually has access to for their self-care. So self-care for somebody who makes less money and has less time for it is going to look very, very different than for somebody who has more access to resources, time and money are just a couple of the ones that come to mind. So when I counsel in a one-on-one setting, I am taking those factors into consideration and the way, unfortunately, the system is set up with healthcare, who has access to healthcare and mm. reimbursement for healthcare, the folks that I'm working with in a one-on-one setting have a certain income level above that poverty line that where it would impact their health. So I would be talking to them from self-care from a standpoint of mental health comes first. And then I would just take a look at all the different factors that might be impacting their physical health. So it's usually things like genetics and family history, but then also the ways that our diet culture has constructed this fear of you're going to die if you don't exercise consistently and intensely. And even the fitness industry, right? No pain, no gain. Or there's, you could see on social media, you know, sweat is fat crying or fitspo. And this thing is, this stuff's supposed to be inspiring, but really just makes us feel guilty if we go to a holiday party or a New Year's party or a birthday party instead of making sure that we hit that 90-minute yoga class. Mm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, our guest, Ms. Rebecca Scritchfield. She is a fellow registered dietitian, certified exercise physiologist, and author of a terrific new book whose time has come. The title is Body Kindness, Transform Your Health from the Inside Out and Never Say Diet Again. You know, I used to say that diet was a four-letter word, and I think that it is so culturally normal for us to be on a diet and to always be looking for the right diet. Oh, now we're going to restrict carbohydrates. Now we're going to restrict fat. You know, it's always something. And when I saw your presentation and saw the failure rate of all diets, I was blown away. So based on the data presented, the probability of attaining a quote unquote normal weight as defined, I would say, by the BMI data a 5% weight loss, and that's it. And if you achieve that, you're going to have to work really hard to maintain it. So what was it, a 500-calorie deficit that you're going to have to maintain every day and deal with feelings of stress and hunger because our body is just trying to maintain a certain level of fatness? Yeah, so generally speaking, the big takeaway is that there is diversity in size from birth, and we all follow a trend, and there are certain factors that can impact our trend, like geographic location and income and cultural history and our behavioral patterns that are also influenced by our resources and everything like that. So it's the same way where we notice and accept that we have diversity in height or hair color or eye color, that there's also diversity in size, and there really is not one 
ideal size for everybody, which is kind of like what the BMI tries to do. And again, it uses health as like this is for health reasons, but really there's a 60 plus billion dollar a year dieting industry that also wants you to believe that if you invest in that, that you're doing what you can for your health. And so what we know is population wise that very few people can lose weight and keep it off in the long run. And those who do, they have to be super rigid. And one would even question things like weighing yourself every day, things like eliminating certain food groups, like when you don't really know what to do at a birthday party anymore. You would question, well, is this really health? Why are we using weight as a proxy for health here? And I think that's the bigger question and concern to have. And so, of course, individuals listening might be like, but, you know, I'm kind of concerned because of the holidays or... In the last couple of years, I have seen my weight creep up. Like, I fully expect people to have individual weight concerns. I'm not asking you to give up those weight concerns. But what's important to understand is that you are an individual and you can ask yourself, what are changes I have control over? Not thoughts, not feelings, not my weight, but what are changes that I have control personal control over, such as choosing when I go to bed and how much sleep I might get, choosing to shop and prep ahead so I have access to yummy food that is also balanced and going to help me protect my immunity and have good digestive health, say, or making sure I get a workout and even sometimes I might not really feel like it. So there are lots of opportunities for really positive self-care choices and to focus on that and that you as an individual, because you hadn't had some previous healthy patterns, might adopt those, and you might lose weight. But you might have a friend who would do the exact same thing who might not. And that is because that there are differences in our genetics and just naturally our bodies want to defend a range of weights. And so we can always say, oh, but there was a time when I tried this diet and it worked. We say it worked, but it never really worked for two to five years. And that's actually what we'd want to say if something, quote, works, Mm -hmm. that you were able to make changes that were workable and livable and joyful and fun and added to your life, improved your health, whether it's your labs or you have better bowel habits, whatever you can come up with. I'm sick less often. I've never had more energy that you notice positive and sustainable changes and to know that if your body lost weight with that, that was just you and your body working together to be at a place where it genetically was meant to be and effortlessly stay, but that that's not going to be true for all other people. And if you're one of those that's said, I've tried dieting and I lose it and regain it and lose it and regain it, know that that is common and that is called weight cycling and it's your body's way of defending itself to prevent starvation, frankly, and that it's actually good that it's doing that. It's just that you struggle with feeling like your efforts for self-care are good enough because our whole culture tells you that it's wrong and not good enough unless you're thinner and that you have an extra struggle because you have to deal with the culture that says, unless you lose weight, what you're doing isn't good enough and that that's a burden that's not your fault. The culture needs to change to say your body and your health is your business and your choice, and I'm not going to judge you. I hope that you have a good and happy life, and I'm not going to judge your health based on the way that you look. 
But besides that, I haven't even brought up the fact that there's weight stigma even in job opportunities. Right. So we know that higher weight people have more difficulty earning the same amount of money because they're less likely to get hired for jobs and they're less likely to get promoted for higher level jobs. And that also has to do with our cultural belief system about what it means to be a higher weight. You must be lazy. You must not care about yourself. And just imagine if you're someone with thin privilege listening, imagine what that would feel like to every day incessantly hear that you are not good. You are not adequate. Mm-hmm. And that has a toll on your physical and your mental health. Well, that's something that I really love about your book is that you can turn to it and find alternative ways of thinking so you can shut down those negative messages and truly be kind to your body. And I want to give you an opportunity to pick out a few sections of this book that you would like to share with our listeners, sort of as a teaser for just how kind this book really is. And yet it's based in science. And I think Mm -hmm. it will be probably one of the most effective ways of reaching health in the new year. Sure. There is a key focus for the book, and it's really about helping you find your inner caregiver voice. Mm. And your inner caregiver, like the best way to think about it is it's like, imagine the advice that you would give to a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the quickest ways that you'd be like, oh, yeah, I can hear that now. Because it's very compassionate. It's very understanding. wants to hold you and say, it's okay to be here right now. It's okay to have this problem and it's okay to struggle. I'm here with you and I'm going to help you through this. What we have that's very strong in our mind is an inner critic voice. It's perfectionist. It's judgmental. Nothing's ever good enough. And we start to develop that voice from the age of one. And it is conditioned in us by family, friends, schools, society, magazines, all of it. And it just becomes a voice of who we are because we've heard it for so long. So body kindness really, it helps you through mindfulness really be present So you're like, okay, so I'm having the thought that I really need another glass of wine because I'm really stressed about work right now. And so how can you notice that thought, but also remember that you might like your wine, but you really don't want to numb with wine. Right. And so how you can notice that thought and think, you know what, I actually think what would be good right now is a cup of tea instead. As much as I feel drawn to that wine, it's a short-term solution. I really want to be the kind of person who enjoys wine for social reasons or with a really good meal. And now is just not the right time. Mm -hmm. And then you make choices in line with that value. And that's what's so, so different is that with dieting, you give the controls to someone else and it gives you a reason to rebel. And as humans, we're going to rebel. We're 16. We're breaking out of the house, right? With body kindness, your preferences matter your well-being matters, and why you want to make those choices matter. In dietetics, we're taught wine is a five-ounce pour and 120 calories. Like, I hate that I even know that, but I do, (laughs) right? That's what we're taught, limit to this. But it's external. We all have an inner reason in the context. And when we can connect to our inner caregiver and just hold ourselves with kindness and listen, we, we start to find our own answers. And then how that relates to the neurobiology part is our brain can learn and grow. So when we do this body kindness work and we practice this, it's okay to be here, this compassion, this acceptance, what's the next self-care choice? Now we understand that it's not about the wine at all or the ounces or the calories or the whatevers. 
because your critic will get you to say, shut up and drink the wine, and then it'll beat you up for it after. Right. It's so unhelpful. Yeah. But your caregiver says, oh, it's so hard to be stressed. It's so hard to be in a work deadline, and it's so hard to be in an argument with this person you care about. Mm-hmm. But right now, what you need is your feet up and some soothing time to just regulate this emotion. There'll be wine at another time when it really matters. And that's just one example, but that could be wine, it could be cheesecake, it could be some people actually go to exercise as a way to deal with emotions, but it's not in a healthy way because they do it too much. Right. And that's the thing. The ways that you have learned to adapt to difficulty in life, they work to a point, but now you're listening and you're at this point where you want to create a better life. That's what body kindness is going to help you do. Unhook from things that are no longer working and really reframe health to well-being and something that's personally meaningful that's never going to find salvation in a pan size or a number on a scale. And what you're really going to find is freedom because you can figure out how to make choices that suit you best. And when that critic loses its power in your own mind, you can actually enjoy and engage with life. And that's what people will say, like, I know you say this is a book about never dieting, but this is a book about so much more. And it truly is because when you're so distracted by that inner critic that's living rent-free in your brain, you can't possibly engage with fun and relationships and hobbies and all these other things because you're too stuck. So it's like you start with the inner caregiver and then you go into all these other places where you're, gosh, these things I used to worry about really don't matter anymore because I have found a way out. And that's really my wish for everyone. We are all renting space on the planet no matter what we want to believe about how we can control and prevent and cheat death, nobody is getting out of here alive. So wouldn't it be lovely to appreciate the gifts we have and to try to find a good and meaningful life that's not about being perfect? Yeah, I totally agree. We don't have much time left, and I just want to Mm -hmm. run through some of these sections of the book that I thought were especially helpful. You talk about mindful eating. You talk about Mm -hmm. Zen in the kitchen. You have blueprints for people. You talk Mm -hmm. about the power of sleep. All of these issues are so important. Self-talk, expressive writing, getting in touch with our feelings, critical in terms of eating to truly be well and not use it to fill a void. So do you want to leave our listeners with a charge? Yeah, I would love to leave listeners with the idea of evolving. There's a concept throughout the book called Spiral Up, Mm -hmm. and it's this idea that it doesn't matter how you feel in that present moment. You have permission to feel that, but there's one choice that you can make that will help you feel a little bit more uplifted, a little more open, a little more connected to yourself or to somebody else. And that is a decision to evolve and to just think a little bit differently, reject that urge to go on that plan, the Whole30, the keto, the whatever is the (sighs) hot selling diet book, and just say, let me say not right now. And let me imagine this idea of I can connect to my feelings I can connect to my body and I can stop and think about what is one choice that might make things a little bit better and a little bit brighter. And by you taking that power back, you're actually evolving and spiraling up and feeling more connected to yourself and others. And you're taking away the power that diet culture has taken from you. That's perfect. 
That's beautiful. We need to close because unfortunately we're out of time. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn at Kopian Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Rebecca Scritchfield, fellow registered dietitian, certified exercise physiologist, and author of a terrific new book, Before You Go on Any New Diet, Read This First. Body Kindness, Transform Your Health from the Inside Out, and Never Say Diet Again. You can go online. The website is bodykindnessbook.com. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with me and for being such a great colleague. Thank you. 